Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome all of you, too, who are worshiping with us online. We're thankful that we're worshiping together. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church that exists to call people to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. If you've been a part of City, you know two years ago we took an entire year to look at one thing, the kingdom of God. Last year we took an entire year to look at how do you live in the kingdom of God. This year, what we're focusing on in 2024 is called life in the spirit as we continue to look at God's kingdom. We made the decision to begin our year by looking at some practical spiritual disciplines that all of us can incorporate into our life that will help us to live a life that is truly spirit-filled. In order to do this, we handed out to you guys hundreds of books by Richard Foster entitled The Celebration of Discipline. And so, again, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at another one of the spiritual disciplines. But before we do, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me, and we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And the reason why we pray the Lord's Prayer, if you're from the high church, you've known this as the Our Father But the reason why we pray the Lord's uh, Prayer together is that in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon exclusively about how to live in the kingdom of God, in the dead center of the Sermon on the Mount, we are brought the Lord's Prayer. It's not just an example of how to pray. It's literally the prayer of the kingdom of God. And so we pray it together every single Sunday morning. So let's pray it out loud. Here we go. This then is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Turn and give your neighbor a fist bump, high five, hug, or a handshake. Go ahead and greet one another for a moment. Again, we're well aware that that's every introvert's nightmare, but I would apologize, but the kingdom of God is all about relationship. Now, how many of you were here last Sunday and you heard Pastor Blake's sermon on worship, spiritual worship? Raise your hand. How many of you would say that listening to his sermon was a lot of fun because he talked about growing up in a restaurant family, his family owned restaurants in uh, Richmond, and he is a complete foodie. How many of you would agree that you're a foodie? Raise your hand. How many of you like restaurants? There you go. Now, on the heels of that brilliant sermon, it was an excellent sermon on worship and spirit-filled worship. My sermon is on fasting. So in response... To Blake's beautiful sermon on worship, mine is on fasting. It's the fourth discipline in the book that we've been reading together uh, um, from Richard Foster. Now, 
Where I want to begin is this. I want to confess to you that fasting, probably for the first decade of my ministry life, was non-existent. I never fasted. Now, with that in mind, um, what I knew was, was that Jesus taught on it in the Sermon on the Mount. He basically said, when you fast, when you pray, when you give. It's a when, not if. And I also knew that Jesus fasted. He fasted for 40 days once. I knew he fasted. But the reality of it is, for the first decade of my ministry life, and I've been in ministry for 36 years, I can say with complete confidence, fasting basically had no place in my spiritual life. And the reason is, is because I had convinced myself I couldn't fast. I had convinced myself, and here's why. Most of you know that I serve with the UVA wrestling team, and um, I had grown up wrestling. So from middle school through high school, we had what's called cutting weight. And cutting weight basically meant when I was wrestling, it's not the case anymore. You can actually have a nutrition lifestyle that keeps you at a certain weight. But when I wrestled in middle school and high school, the coach would bring us in, he'd line us up, put us on the scale, and he'd say, you're going to wrestle 10 pounds lighter than you are at the beginning of the, there was no wisdom in it at all. I would go to the doctor and he was supposed to sign off and he would say, what weight do you want to wrestle at? And I'd tell him he'd sign it, pat me on the back and say, go crush him. It was like really no supervision at all. So what ended up happening for all of us was, was that we would live a certain way and then two days before we would wrestle, we would literally stop eating and stop drinking. Literally, it's what you did. And we put plastic bags on, get in the shower, and jump rope for two to three hours to sweat out all the rest of the water. Then you'd go and weigh in and supposedly wrestle. You're completely emaciated and exhausted. And the kid that was at the normal weight for their body would just throw me around because they were full of McDonald's and they were ready to roll. So the truth of it is, is that after that, I became what would be called borderline hypoglycemic. Having done that for so many years, messed up my digestive tract, my digestive system. So I told myself, you can't fast. You can't. And so I never did really fast, to be totally honest. Not only that, I grew up on a farm where we raised beef and chicken. And fasting to me along with the vegetarian lifestyle, seemed highly un-American, just so you know. But as we look at fasting, I want to begin with a quote from Richard Foster's book. Here's what he said. The constant propaganda fed to us today convinces us that if we do not have th three large meals every day with several snacks in between, we are on the verge of starvation. This coupled with the popular belief that it is a positive virtue to satisfy every human appetite has made fasting seem obsolete. I want to share with you my road towards fasting. I had been the pastor here. We came on board 26 years ago. And when I arrived here at City, there were some changes that need to be made, not only in the church, but also in me. And so, after the first year, I was in prayer, and I felt kind of nudged by the Lord 
to stop eating sugar. Now, just so you know, when I think about the heavenly supper in heaven, I know it's going to have Italian food and Belgian chocolate. Just trust me. That will be main course at the heavenly wedding feast of the supper of the lamb in heaven. So with that, um, I felt very impressed. And I went to my wife, Franny. I said, honey, I really feel impressed that I need to give up all sugar. And so for over a year, I ate no sugar. During that time, I also at times just ate for sustenance, not enjoyment. And I just felt compelled to do that. And I remember sitting at a Thanksgiving meal with our family and dear friends, and I just kind of felt the release that I could eat sugar again. And so it was some of the best tasting apple pie I've ever had in my entire life. But here's what I know. I know that what Richard Foster said is true. There really is a constant propaganda that speaks to us about things like fasting. It's constant. I know that that constant propaganda has affected me. You see, in the culture in which we live, there's what's called the American dream. And the American dream, just so you know, is the combination of success and comfort. As much as you can possibly get. And so what ends up happening is you look at fasting and you think that doesn't look very comfortable. And so what ends up happening is spiritual disciplines like this and other spiritual practices just simply go to the wayside because they don't align with the American dream. And so we get lulled to sleep and our passion for Jesus and the kingdom of God begins to wane. And the reality of it is, with that constant propaganda, what we find is, is that spiritual things are set aside for material things and creature comforts. That's how it works. Now, as I was preparing this message on fasting, I knew it would not be popular. But I also thought about a quote that's going to make it even less popular. There was a pastor that when I first stepped into ministry, he kind of remotely took me under his wing a little bit. He was very seasoned. He pastored in a community called Wyckoff, New Jersey, which isn't that dissimilar from the community in which we live. And he shared the following quote with me, that he had noticed after pastoring people for many years that a secular job promotion often results in a spiritual demotion. In other words, when people begin to attain their goals of success in their career, and it doesn't have to be this way, but oftentimes that success, that promotion brings spiritual demotion in their lives. And so with all of this background, what I want to do is tell you the story of four young adults, much like the college students that are sitting in this sanctuary. There were four of them. Now, I'd weave my own story, but there's a better one found in Scripture. And it's found in an odd place, especially an odd place to begin a sermon on fasting. 
but it's Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. What I want to do is just read the text for us, and then we're going to take a deep look at it. Here's what the text tells us in the book of Daniel, which, by the way, was being read at the time of Jesus. It's one of the last of the Older Testament books to be written. Here's what the text says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So there's an invading king and an invading foreign power. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Then he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure of the house of his God. So what you have is two kingdoms, two kings, and they're at war with each other. Reading on, it says, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his cohort official, court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Sounds like the entrance to the University of Virginia, doesn't it, young men? Reading on, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, in other words, to indoctrinate them. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after, they were, after that, they were to enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. His goal was to erase their identity. He gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't even know their Hebrew names. What we discover here is, is that you've got Nebuchadnezzar, who is a king and a kingdom that opposes the people of God. They're in direct opposition. And what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? He's absolutely brilliant. What he does is, as he brings in the best of God's people, and he shows them the best of everything he has. He shows them the best of education. He's the wealthiest, most educated guy alive. He shows them the beauty of his architecture and the power of his kingdom. What else he does is he shows them all of the luxury that his kingdom can afford and all of the creature comforts. He brings them in and shows them all of this. And you see what he is doing is brilliant. What he is doing is absorption and assimilation without confrontation. Just bring them in. Show them all you've got and all the glamour and glory of his kingdom. Rename them to change their identity and they will assimilate and be absorbed without any confrontation. The text also says that he, very specifically, the text tells you, he assigned all of them food from the king's table. And by the way, he's the wealthiest man alive. He has hired three-star Michelin chefs 
trust me. And those chefs made the finest of foods. Because if the food isn't awesome, you lose your head. Can you imagine you are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and you're getting this food sent to you? Think about it. Think about how that would draw you in. I love great food. I love it. This would be some of the finest food you've ever eaten in your life. And the truth of it is, who would ever blame Daniel for eating it? The truth of it is, who would ever even know? He's in Babylon. He's there with his buddies. He could easily look around and say, guys, we never got food like this in Israel. Let's eat. But the text tells us that Daniel does something fascinating. He draws a spiritual line, and he refuses to cross it. And it's all about food. Reading on, the text tells us in verse 8, in response to everything King Nebuchadnezzar has done, it says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food. By the way, translation in Hebrew of royal food, not a good one. It's actually a portion of delicacies that is royal. Just picture that. Can you imagine the chocolate mousse? Oh, it'd be just amazing. And wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. You see, what we discover is Daniel has been going along with all of this, but when it comes to food, he draws a line. That fascinates me. Maybe it because he knew that Adam and Eve fell because food was presented to them. Maybe he knew that. But for whatever reason, I can tell you what the reason wasn't. In a lot of commentaries, if you look up why Daniel and his buddies didn't eat, here's what they're going to tell you. Because the food had been offered to idols and the food on the table wasn't kosher. But I promise you, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they had the best food that money could buy. And for some reason, they drew a line in the sand spiritually and said, we cannot eat this. Now, why? Why food? Here's why. Food is the basis of human desires. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. Hunger is a good thing. Oh, by the way, it keeps you alive. But it's interesting to note that when he looked at that food, the text tells us he asked for a different menu. Yes, hard to believe, but it was actually vegetarian but what he does is he pushes back from the table because somehow he knows if he indulges in this, he's going to lose himself. The Apostle Paul describes people like this in his day. Philippians 3.19. Their God or their stomach is their God. They brag about what they should be ashamed of. They think only about earthly things. What a phrase to put in front of us. Their stomach is their God. By the way, biblically, the stomach is the seat of all of your desires. And basically what's being taught by Paul is that their stomach, their desires run everything. And what we discover is 
Daniel pushes back from the table. He knows that if he keeps going down the road he's going down, he will lose himself and his God. And the the line that he draws is food. It's food. Now, some of you have been on what's called the Daniel fast. That's where it comes from is this passage in this story. But here's what you need to know. A Daniel fast is a complete misnomer. You see, it never calls it a fast in Scripture ever. You see, the fast that I was on where I didn't eat sugar actually isn't a fast. Also, some people have done what's called a media fast. That's not a fast. There is one fast found in Scripture, and it's this. Fasting is the decision by a person or a group of people to not eat food for a designated period of time because of God. They push away from the table, and they say, if I keep going the way I'm going, I'm going to end up where I don't want to be. Now, I want to be completely honest here. There are some of you sitting here that shouldn't fast. Medically, you should not. But I wonder if the majority of us aren't like me, where I talked myself into the truth that I couldn't, that I couldn't fast. But again, a true fast biblically is always food, where you set it aside for a period of time. Now, here's some biblical fasting facts. In Scripture, there's a one-day fast, sun up to sundown. There's a three-day fast, a seven-day fast, and a fast that lasts 40 days. There are three people in the Bible that did a 40-day fast that we're told about. Moses, who brings the law, Elijah, who brings the prophets, and Jesus, who brings the gospel. All three of them had a 40-day fast. But here's what I can tell you. That biblical fasting is nothing like cutting weight for wrestling, at least the way I did it. You see, when you're cutting weight for wrestling, it's all about the physical body. The focus is on the physical, not the spiritual. And if you didn't notice that one of the greatest idols in our culture is the physical body. The idea then is, is what is fasting actually about? Fasting is actually about something called flesh. Paul brings it up in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh desires what is contrary or against the spirit, and the spirit what is against the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do, you are not to do whatever you want. Romans 8.6. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. And most of us, when we sit here and we see that word flesh, we think about your physical body. How many of you think that when you see flesh and you go, oh no, my body. Why does this body always cause me all of this trouble? Look, the reality of is the Greek word for flesh is the Greek word sarks. And even though it's intertwined with the body, that word is not your physical body per se. Now, here's the definition for sarks in Scripture. Sarks biblically is usually negative. Rarely is it positive. One of them is where in the text it says, and two shall become one flesh. That's sarks. 
it's physically impossible for two physical beings suddenly to become one. No, it's about sarks. So what is sarks? Biblically is usually negative, referring to making decisions, actions, according to self, done apart from faith, independent from God's inworking. Flesh generally relates to unaided human effort, decisions or actions that originate from self or are empowered by self. This is carnal or of the flesh and proceeds out of the unchanged part of us, that, that which is not transformed by God. I don't know how, how you are, but often in my life, Sarks rules the day. I experience that. And it is true that you are both physical and spiritual. That is true. It is also true that your physical body and sarks are intertwined. But what the Bible presents is the one thing that faces that and confronts it is fasting. It's the one definitive thing. So as we put feet to your faith, why fasting? Number one, fasting will starve the flesh, the sarks, not the body. In other words, the focus is not on the physical, it's on the spiritual. And so we starve the sarks so that we feed the spirit. Remember, food is your basic desire and need. It's not a bad thing. But there's something about looking at that primal thing and saying, I'm going to set that aside for the kingdom. Number two, why fasting? Fasting will create a hunger for and a dependency on God. One of the things that I've discovered every time I've ever fasted was that as I got hungry, my sense of self-sufficiency and self-dependency went away because I knew that I was going to even need help to even develop food to feed myself. Next, when you fast, fleshly desires are somehow revealed and then diminished. I've experienced this in my own life, where I've had sarks that it's trying to move me away from the kingdom of God. And so I would step into a period of fasting, and I don't know how it works. I'm not sure how it all works. To me, it's like confession and forgiveness. When those two things are presented to God like fasting, I don't understand how it all works. But when I say no to the basic desire of life, somehow the Sark's things get taken care of during that time, and they're diminished. And the last reason for fasting is to follow Jesus and live in the kingdom of God while residing in Babylon. You and I both know we live in Babylon. How many of you would agree? And what we get the sense of biblically, and I knew from the jump this would not be my most popular sermon, but I know I live in Babylon, and my Sarks loves it. But the Spirit of God and my sense to follow Jesus and to live in the kingdom is something that is empowered through fasting and prayer.